Good morning. Let us turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. And this morning, our attention will be given to verses 1 and 2. And I have provided some sermon notes in case you are wanting to follow along with those notes. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Let's read together these two wonderful verses. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Let me read those again. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, this morning we need the ministry of the Spirit. We need Him to be our teacher, to guide our thoughts, to lead us into the truth. Father, I pray that you will keep me from saying anything that will distract from the truth. And as always, we ask that you save sinners, that you sanctify saints, and that you exalt the name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And once again, we ask that you grant your word success and that you will powerfully continue, Lord, to transform our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have a central thought for you to consider this morning as we meditate on the first two verses of Exodus chapter 20. But before I give you the central thought, consider with me the title of this sermon, a redemptive preamble, a redemptive preamble. What is a preamble? Well, a preamble is an introductory remark. In the case of the 10 commandments, the preamble is what we just read in Exodus chapter 20 verses one and two. And in this preamble or in these uh, introductory remarks from which God then launches into the 10 commandments, we find one main theme, and it is this. God is a God who redeems. In those two verses, we find that main theme. God is a God who redeems. Our God is a redeeming God who rescues people from bondage. Hence the sermon title. Now with that in mind, here is today's central thought. Please do not miss the central thoughts. You cannot begin to properly understand the Ten Commandments without first remembering the redemptive acts of the Lord. You cannot begin to properly understand the Ten Commandments without first remembering the redemptive acts of the Lord. In short, obedience is the outflow of redemption. Obedience is the outflow of redemption. Let me ask you this. Does that statement remind you of anything? For those of you who have been here for the last two years, does that statement remind you of anything or something? It did remind me of something. Believe it or not, I was not planning on bringing this up until I thought of that statement, that central thought. 
As I wrote it down, my mind immediately went back to something we learned during our study of the book of Ephesians. As we were going through that book, we learned one of the most critical lessons concerning the Christian life. This is a lesson we cannot afford to miss. What is that critical lesson? It is this. The Christian life is essentially about two things. Beholding the works of God and living in a manner consistent with those works. Beholding the works of God and then living in a manner consistent with those works. In other words, we are bringing this back to this constant, never-ending interplay between the indicatives and the imperatives. Remember? You might be able to recall that in the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul spent the first three chapters calling us to behold the works of God in Christ. These works included election, predestination, adoption, the forgiveness of sins, the gathering of all things under Christ, the sealing of the spirit, the resurrection of Jesus, our spiritual resurrection from the dead, salvation by grace, Christ's work of unity in the church, etc., etc. Do you remember that? First three chapters. And after giving us three full chapters in which we were able to behold the mighty works of God in Christ, then, and only then, he said, now therefore walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And this, my friends, is the most critical lesson of the Christian life. First, you must behold, then you are ready to walk. First, you contemplate, you admire, you believe, you rejoice in the indicatives of redemption. Then, and only then, you live the imperatives of Christianity. Faithful walking requires constant beholding. Faithful walking requires constant beholding. My brothers and sisters, as we look at the Ten Commandments, we cannot forget this critical lesson. In fact, Please consider this thought, the very fact that the preamble to the Ten Commandments is drenched in redemptive language immediately reminds us of the same critical lesson. God doesn't call Israel to obey without first calling them to behold. We could, in fact, use the language of Ephesians and insert it right here in Exodus chapter 20. It would sound something like this. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Now, therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. Do you see it? It is throughout the entire scripture. This is the Christian life. Behold, what I have done, says the Lord. Behold my works of redemption, behold my power, behold my grace, behold my mercy, behold my deliverance, therefore obey. In summary, let me say it like this. Before you can walk in obedience, you need to behold in faith. Before you can walk in obedience, you need to behold in faith. Now we're ready to take a closer look at these two introductory verses in Exodus chapter 20. Let me give you first the historical setting. What is the historical setting? Egyptian bondage. 
That is the historical setting. Consider what the Lord said to the people of Israel. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the house of slavery, slavery. As it is the case with all the books of the Bible, there's much taking place in terms of history surrounding each book. Exodus is no exception to that rule. Now, this is very ancient history, which complicates matters a little more, but we will try. There are many challenges that come from teaching these sections of scripture, but we need to understand the historical context uh, in order to understand what the point of the New Testament, um, I'm sorry, the Ten Commandments is. So let me begin with some dates. Let me begin with some dates. I know this is the exciting part, right? Dates. When did the events of the Exodus take place? Well, if you have studied the book of Exodus in the past, you know that there has been plenty of academic debate going back and forth. This has been one of the most difficult things uh, to decide the dates of the Exodus. However, if we follow the biblical record, which is all we're interested in, then the accounts of the book of Exodus took place in the 15th century BC, before Christ, around the year 1446 BC, to be more precise. Now, there is another important contextual detail given to us in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, where Moses tells us this, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know who? Joseph. There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Very important contextual detail. According to at least two Old Testament scholars that I read, this new king was probably not an, an Egyptian, but a foreigner. Most likely from a people known as the Hyksos, the Hyksos. So whoever this new king was, he was not from an Egyptian dynasty and was therefore a usurper. He did not belong there. The fact that he did not know Joseph seems to support this view because most Egyptians would have been familiar with all the current events happening in their land, especially events surrounding such a prominent man like Joseph. So this new king was a foreigner. He was probably not an Egyptian. The Hyksos, therefore, took the throne by force. After a while, however, the king, along with the Hyksos, were removed by the Egyptians themselves. Who came after this man? Well, most likely, the pharaoh who came after him was Tuthmosis III. Probably, he is the one who took the throne and very possibly, this was the Pharaoh who stood against Moses and Aaron and ultimately against God during the plagues, Tooth Moses III. But the events surrounding the Hiskos would have left a bitter taste on the Egyptians, which was likely the cause behind the anti-foreigner attitude that developed in Egypt over time. Thus, the Egyptians began to look upon the Israelites who were living and multiplying there with contempt. They didn't like him anymore. This then marked the beginning of a new era, both for Egypt and for Israel. This is where the conflict started. Now the stage is set for the creation of an environment of bondage and slavery. Thus, the Israelites went from good favor with the Egyptians to forced labor for the Egyptians. Joseph was forgotten and the Israelites became the enemy within the land 
of Egypt. This naturally leads us into our second main consideration, the redemptive initiative. The redemptive initiative. Now we know the historical context. What is the redemptive initiative? Well, mighty deliverance. Mighty deliverance. I am the Lord your God who brought you out. Who brought you out. If there's one particular truth that the book of Exodus reveals quite strongly, it would have to be the following. God is a covenant God who keeps his promises to those whom he loves. God is a covenant God who keeps his promises to those whom he loves. We learn this quickly in the book of Exodus. For instance, in Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, we are told that God remembered his covenant with whom? Abraham. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And then in chapter 3, verse 15, after Moses is commissioned to go and be the deliverer of Israel, we read, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. It is not surprising then that the book of Exodus begins with these words. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. By far, by far, one of the most amazing truths about God as revealed in Holy Scripture is that God identifies himself with his people. We should never get over that single fact. Have you noticed that? He often refers to himself as the God of, the God of, which is astonishing. Consider the infinite condescension that lies behind this incredible reality. Why would an infinite God who needs nothing, lacks nothing, and possesses all things, why would he choose to refer himself as the God of a human being? Why would God bind himself to men such as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, none of whom were the quintessential example of holiness and righteousness, if you know what I mean? Very imperfect men, and yet God calls himself, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. Once again, we are struck by the overwhelming force of God's relentless grace and mercy upon an unworthy people. This is who God is. He calls the undeserving, the poor, the weak, the needy. And with and through and in them, he does marvelous things. Only a merciful and gracious God would ever say, I am your God. What have you done to deserve that? And whatever you do, please do not miss this. God always always, always takes the initiative. Always. He never acts in response to external factors. He always acts in accordance with his own perfect and sovereign will. Notice that he didn't ask the Israelites if they wanted to be his people. He didn't come to them and say, would you guys be okay if I call you my people? 
He simply told him, you are my people. I am your God. This is our God, my brothers and sisters. He doesn't wait for sinners to choose him. He simply chooses sinners so that they will love him. And by the way, the way he operates in the world hasn't changed. If you're here, it's not because you took the initiative. It's the same. It only makes sense then that when the Lord Jesus Christ came to die, he died for a specific people. He shed his blood for actual individuals with names and personalities and identities. He, and he died for each one. Or as Ephesians 5.25 tells us, Jesus loved and gave himself up for the church. There are two testaments in the Bible, old and the new, but there's only one message, my friends. There's only one. What is that message? God seeks, calls, and redeems a people chosen by him out of his own merciful and gracious will. That is the message. Therefore, to the Israelites, God says, I am your God who brought you out. Why did God bring them out? Because this is what God does. God redeems people, but he does it, and don't miss this, he does it in accordance with his covenant. Don't miss the fact that the driving force behind the deliverance of Israel from Egypt was God's own faithfulness to his covenant with Abraham. That's why the Bible tells us he remembered, he remembered, he remembered, he remembered what he told Abraham. He remembered what he told Isaac. He remembered what he told Jacob. Therefore, he delivered them. His faithfulness to that covenant was the force behind the deliverance of Israel. Now, hold that thought. Hold that thought. Are you holding it? Are you holding it? Hold that thought. Don't let it just walk away. Hold it. We'll return to it. Consider with me a very crucial point, which is of interest to us as we meditate on this. The Lord says, I brought you out of Egypt. Do you think that's significant that it was Egypt? I think it was. This is very significant. So I'm actually not asking you. I'm telling you. <laughs> it's significant. According to some scholars, by this time, the Egyptian empire was at its peak in terms of power and influence in the world. This particular dynasty to which Tuthmosis III belonged was one of the most powerful in the history of the empire. Tuthmosis III even made a name for himself through military campaigns. One scholar pointed out that during his reign, and I quote, the Egyptian war machine was most effective and devastating, end quote. Why is this of interest to us? Because it is as though God waited until the empire reached its greatest power to intervene and show who had the true power over all things. It is as though God waited until the empire reached impressive heights just so that he could bring them down with even more impressive force and show the whole world who is God. And so God sent forth his plagues, all of which had a very specific purpose. And we will see that in the coming weeks. For now, let us simply remember that it was God who brought them out. Out from where? Well, slavery. Slavery. Notice the following important details. Most of these Israelites 
were born in Egypt, which means that most of them were born into slavery. These people were born into a kingdom ruled by wicked powers. And the Israelites themselves were servants to these powers. There are many parallels that we can draw. And we will return to that as well. So hold another thought. You have two thoughts to hold in your head. Now this leads us to the divine purpose. What is the divine purpose in all of this? In delivering the people of Israel? There is one. Intimate fellowship intimate fellowship. Consider that little word. I am the Lord, your God. Not I am the Lord, the God. I am the Lord, your God. In the accounts of the Exodus, God did many things. But if we had to choose one that captures the essence of God's ultimate purpose for his people, it would be what we read in chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. If you would, please turn to Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. This is the divine purpose. This is why God delivered them from the land of Egypt. Please pay attention to the intimacy of the language. Exodus 6, 6 and 7. We read, I am the Lord, your God. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you. Does that language sound familiar? Taking, taking someone to yourself. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will take you. You know what that language is? That is marriage language. It is the husband taking his bride. What did the Lord Jesus do? When he came into the world, he came to take his bride, the church. The Lord takes his people as a husband takes his bride. And all of this naturally and necessarily leads us into the final point for consideration this morning. There's only one place to go from here. And this is the perfect entryway into the 10 commandments. The appropriate response, the appropriate response. What is the only appropriate response to everything God did? Grateful obedience, grateful obedience. And so this takes us into Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. You shall. You shall. After considering the historical setting of Egyptian bondage, the redemptive initiative as seen in God's mighty deliverance, and the divine purpose of intimate fellowship, we are now in a position to begin to see the main point of the Ten Commandments as seen from a human perspective. You see, when you begin to understand the historical setting, the redemptive initiative, and the divine purpose, you are in a place where the Ten Commandments begin to make more sense. What are the Ten Commandments about? The Ten Commandments are about fellowship driven by gratitude. Fellowship driven by gratitude. But this is somewhat obvious, isn't it? You have to know that you have been given a gift before you can say thank you. 
In a very similar way, you have to learn to behold the acts of the Lord before you will live a life of obedience and gratitude for what he has done. So let me take us into a few practical lessons that we learn from this. Let me ask you a question. What is the relevance of all this for us today? I mean, after all, Exodus is a pretty old book. You know that, right? He's a pretty old book, a few uh, thousand years. What lessons do we learn? Are we to infer from all this that we, the church, just like the Israelites, will one day be faced with a pharaoh in a place called Egypt and that we will too cross a sea? Is that the lesson for us? That's very unlikely. Why take the time then to study this section of scripture? What's the point? In fact, what is the point of even having an Old Testament if this is primarily a historical account of a people we never met living in an age very different from ours with experiences and a culture we know little about? Now, the New Testament makes sense, right? Because clearly we are New Testament people. But the Old Testament? What do we make of the Old Testament? Well, let me see if I can help breach the gap between Exodus as a historical record of a people known as the Israelites and us today as the church in the New Testament era. How are we going to do this? Well, for, for this, I need you to consider with me the words of one very prominent, very influential New Testament scholar from the past. Do you know who I'm talking about? That's a hard question, isn't it? I'm thinking of J. Gratian Machen. I don't know how many of you have heard that name. Very important New Testament scholar. He was the founder of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church or the OPC denomination. Machen loved the truth. He wrote extensively and he wrote very accurately. In his book, Christianity and Liberalism, which if you haven't read that book, I would commend it to you. Very good book, Christianity and Liberalism. In that book, he made a statement that I believe will be helpful as we seek to bridge, bridge the gap between Exodus as history and Exodus as a book written for us in the 21st century. Now, Machen was writing in reference to the work of Christ. Listen to the statement he made. Please don't miss it. And I quote, Christ died. That is history. Christ died for our sins. That is doctrine, end quote. I'm going to read it again. Christ died. That is history. Christ died for our sins. That is doctrine, end quote. What is the point of that statement? It is this. Biblical history is actual history. A man named Jesus actually lived on earth and died under Roman rule. That is actual history. But history has an interpretation. In other words, the historical fact that a man named Jesus died is not a brute historical fact, but a historical fact with a meaning, a significance. An interpretation. So you could do historical research and conclude 
that Jesus died, that a man named Jesus died under Roman rule, you could do that research. If you were a historian, you could do it, and you could find that a man named Jesus died under Roman rule. It's history. But you wouldn't know that Jesus died for our sins unless God tells you in his word. The meaning of the historical fact that Jesus died is doctrine, is given to us by the word of God alone. It comes from scripture. The historical events of the book of Exodus must be understood in a similar way. The events themselves are actual history. Those things took place in the world within the process of history. We believe that. But those events are not just brute historical facts. They also have a meaning. They also have a significance. They also have an interpretation. Therefore, biblical history is theological history, meaning a history with a theological meaning. And that meaning was is, and it always will be, redemption. That is the meaning of those historical events. That is the doctrine, redemption. So let me see if I can borrow Machen's words and apply them to Exodus. I'm going to try to do what he did. A people called Israel were delivered from Egyptian bondage through supernatural events. That is history. Israel's deliverance stands as a picture of our deliverance from the bondage of sin by the power of God. That is doctrine. That is doctrine. How can I reach that conclusion? Well, let's work through this. We have, we have time. We have time. I have soccer at six, so plenty of time. Okay, I'm, I'm not in a hurry. We are fine. Well, consider one of the most prominent if not the most prominent event recorded in the book of Exodus, namely the account of the Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12. The Lord was about to send his last plague upon Egypt. What was the last plague? The death of all the firstborn, both Egyptian slave and even livestock. But he had a special instructions for the people of Israel. He told them what? Well, choose a lamb without blemish, and kill it at twilight. Afterward, they were to put the blood of that lamb on the doorposts and the lintel of their houses. And then the Lord said this in Exodus 12, verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood of the lamb, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Well, thousands of years later, in a city called Ephesus, we encounter the Apostle Paul writing a letter to the church in Corinth. And in chapter five of this letter, Paul called the Corinthians to live holy lives for the Lord and to flee from sexual immorality. Let me ask you this. What was the reason behind his command to the Corinthians? What was the reason he used to call them to holiness? Well, listen to what he says. First Corinthians five, seven, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. 
Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Amazing. Anyone with a basic knowledge of the Old Testament would have known immediately that Paul was making reference to the Exodus. And not only that, but Paul was providing an interpretation of the events of the Exodus. The lamb that was to be sacrificed back in the book of Exodus was a picture, a foreshadowing of the lamb to come, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Therefore, the historical facts of the Exodus have everything to do with us and the Christian life. But there's more. There's much more. From the book of Exodus, we learned several historical facts, which I already mentioned. Remember, I told you to hold a thought, two thoughts. Okay, so we're going back to one of those. The Israelites were slaves in a kingdom of paganism and idolatry. And all of these Israelites were born into slavery. Several months, uh, moments ago, I, I said that there are many parallels in the story of Exodus in our own lives. Let me address that for a moment. The Israelites were born into slavery. Who else is born into slavery? We are. Every single one of us. Like the Israelites, we are all born into slavery. But not Egyptian. We're born into spiritual slavery. And we are born as servants to these powers. What are these powers? Sin, Satan, and the world. As Paul said, we are born following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. We lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Ephesians chapter 2. And as Jesus said, everyone who practices sin is what? A slave to sin. But God intervened. And just like God delivered the people of Israel from the kingdom of Egypt, he has also, listen to this, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. The same story. And why did God do this? Remember the second thought that I told you to hold? You probably don't remember, so I'm going to tell you. The thought was this. The driving force behind the deliverance of Israel from Egyptian slavery was what? God's own faithfulness to what? To his covenant with Abraham. He remembered the covenant with Abraham. Therefore, he sent Moses to rescue his chosen people. Now, did you hold that thought? Okay. Now, let's talk about it. Why did God deliver us from the kingdom of darkness? Well, the answer is very similar, but it is greater. Here's the answer. God delivered us from the kingdom of darkness also because he remembered a covenant. But this time... Not with Abraham, but with his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the father remembered that he had promised to give his son a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. God the Father remembered that he had chosen a people from before the foundation of the world to give to his son as his bride. Therefore, the son, as a type of Moses, became a man, came down to earth, and died for the sins of his people. On the third day, he rose again from the dead, thus defeating not Egypt, but our greatest enemy, death. And now we're free. My friend, don't miss this point. Israel's deliverance from Egypt stands as a historical picture of the spiritual reality that we too have been delivered from a kingdom, not of Egypt, but of darkness and sin through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, our obedience to the Ten Commandments is nothing less than evangelical obedience, meaning obedience that occurs within the framework, within the sphere of the evangel or the gospel, the good news of our redemption through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our obedience can never be outside of the gospel. That's what I mean by evangelical. It is a reference to the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what then are the practical lessons we learn from this redemptive preamble to the Ten Commandments? I have three, and we'll keep this very short. The first lesson is this. Evangelical obedience to God's law must always involve the practice of remembering. Evangelical obedience to God's law must always involve the practice of remembering. And we go back to the beginning. You can't even make sense of the Ten Commandments in the Christian life. If you don't remember the redemptive acts of the Lord in Jesus Christ, you must behold the indicative in order to obey the imperative. Remember what the Lord has done for you in Christ. Second lesson, evangelical obedience to God's law must always be an act of thanksgiving. Evangelical obedience to God's law must always be an act of thanksgiving. How we relate to God and others should ultimately be the outflow of gratitude. And we will see this as we go through the Ten Commandments. And the third and final lesson, we cannot miss this one. Evangelical obedience to God's law must always proceed from faith in Christ. This is an essential practical lesson. Please do not Go home without understanding what I'm about to say. To illustrate this point, please turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles, chapter 26. And we'll begin reading in verse 16. 2 Chronicles, chapter 26, verses 16 through 20. This is the account of King Uzziah. King Uzziah was a good king. He reigned in Jerusalem for 52 years. And according to the Bible, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But his end was very tragic. Let's read together beginning in verse 16, 2 Chronicles 26. But when he, meaning Uzziah, was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now, you would think that a king who wants to go into the temple to burn incense, he wants to do it as an act of obedience. But listen to what happened. But Azariah, the priest, went in after him. 
with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, for, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Verse 19, then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out of on his forehead in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. Verse 20, and Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him and behold, he was leprous in his forehead and they rushed him out quickly and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. There's an important lesson for us here. Thomas Watson pointed out the fact that Uzziah's sin was essentially this. Uzziah sought to offer incense without a priest. Without a priest. He sought to please God. Please listen to this. Uzziah sought to please God by himself without a mediator appointed to that end. Brothers and sisters, what is the lesson for us? Well, here's the lesson for us. Never, never, never seek to offer your obedience to God apart from your high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Never. We are only accepted in the beloved, not in ourselves. Therefore, never separate your obedience to the Father from your faith in Christ. Indeed, obedience to God detached from faith in Christ, our high priest, is mere pride, which necessarily leads to punishment. So I'll finish with this. If you are an unbeliever this morning, if you are an unbeliever this morning, but you are trying to please God by living a quote-unquote good life, you are deceiving yourself, and you are walking in a very dangerous path. In fact, let me say this. If you continue in this path, trying to please God based on your own merits, you will find yourself also being struck with leprosy. But this time... It will be eternal and incurable. You only have one way to God, my friend. You only have one way to please God, my friend. It is not you, it's Christ. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he died and rose again to save sinners from their sins and to give them eternal life. Only Jesus is the way. Only Jesus is the truth. Only Jesus is the life. So, Believe on him today. Do not delay. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder this morning that even though we are considering the Ten Commandments, your law, we cannot do so apart from looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. For we know that on our own strength, in our own merits, we all fall short of your glory. 
but yet you sent your son. In the Old Testament, we read how you sent Moses to deliver the people. But for us, you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to deliver us. Also from a kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom of darkness. And Christ came and died and paid the penalty for our sin, but then he rose again. And with him, he will bring many sons to glory. We thank you for the work of Christ. And I pray that you will take what has been proclaimed here this morning, that your spirit will use it to convict and sanctify. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.